And we are continuing in our series in the book of Nehemiah. We have been going through the book of Nehemiah and then alternately through the book of James. Aaron is preaching about every eight weeks or so except for this summer. He's going to be preaching a couple more times when I get to go on vacation. And then he'll be going through the book of James then as well. So we got to enjoy the book of James last week. So we are back into the book of Nehemiah this week. And we are in chapter 10 of Nehemiah. And we are preaching just expositionally through the book. And if you have been with us, you have been hearing about how God has rebuilt his place and, and God is rebuilding his people because God is a God who rebuilds. And that's, that's really the whole theme of the book of Nehemiah is that God is a God who rebuilds. And, and he first starts off bringing his people back into the land of Israel and he rebuilds the wall and does a miracle there. And they rebuild the wall in 50-some days. And that's really the first six chapters of the book of Nehemiah. And then in, the, in, in chapter 7 through 13, we see that God is rebuilding his people because ultimately that was the intention so that not only God's place, but God's people could reflect God's glory and then be a witness to the nations. And that directly applies to us as well. God is about rebuilding us as a people so that we would draw attention to God and be a means of bringing people to glorify God and glorifying the nations. So um, turn your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 10. We're going to be reading God's Word, and some, sometimes we have you stand. This is about 39 verses, so you can stand in your hearts, but you can sit externally and listen to God's holy inspired Word. Nehemiah 10, because, actually starting in verse 38 of chapter 9. Because of all this, we make a covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. On the seals are the names of Nehemiah. And it goes on from there with many names. Picking up in verse 6, these are the priests. And then he details who the Levites are. And then he details who the chief priests of the chief of the people are. And then you pick back up again in verse 28 and it says the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding. Join with the brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses to the servant of God and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of the shekel for the service of the house of our God. For the showbread, the regular grain, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our Father's houses at appointed times year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks. And to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God. And to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chamber of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for passages like this that lay out 
principles of how we're to live as your people. God, thank you for, for demonstrating what does a people who are devoted to living for you look like. God, a people who've been affected by your word, who are responding to your word, what does it look like to live in light of your word? What does it look like to live as a rebuilt people? Lord, thank you for giving us these examples that have been written down for our instruction. God, I pray that we, these wouldn't be dead words. These wouldn't just be words on a page. But Lord, thank you that your word is living. Your word is active. And so God, I pray that your words would be alive again this morning. That they would live in our minds, in our hearts. That you would enliven us. Enable us to hear from you and respond to you. God, would you fill everybody here with your Holy Spirit to enable us to hear and apply and respond. Would you enable me by your spirit to preach? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, this passage is kind of an intimidating passage of sorts because it's really all about commitment. The people are responding in commitment to God and that's kind of intimidating for us today because in our culture, in our day and age, we don't like commitment very much. We don't like the idea of being committed to something. Giving ourselves fully to something is a little bit scary. You know, there's, there's the running joke that, that men don't like commitment. I don't think it's just limited to men. But you see that in the effects in marriage in our society. You know, it's, I think up to 29 is the, the mean age for men to get married now. Up from in the 60s, I think it was like 22 to 24. And so that doesn't seem like a lot, but five to seven years is a big shift. We're getting older as a society when we get married, and then there's actually less commitment. Society says that we we love to get married, but really only 51% of people 18 and above end up getting married today. That's a huge shift from in the past when it was around 72% of the population committed to the institution of marriage. I think in part, although there's lots of reasons for it, there's a fear of commitment. There's a there's a a realization that it entails something, an obligation on us, and that we live for ourselves generally. We live for what makes us comfortable. We live for what we feel like we deserve instead of submitting ourselves to what God says is best for us. And so we see that all throughout society, not just in, in the age of marriage and in the percentage of marriage, but we also see it in divorce rates and in the fact that I think 42 to 44% of every marriage will end in divorce. Now, not, not always, but often it's a lack of commitment. We don't, we don't like the word commitment. It means something for us. It obligates us. It means that, that we have to respond, that there's something involved for us to respond. But commitment is it's a normal part of affection. You know, when I was dating my wife for far too long, by the way, and then we committed to be married when we became engaged and then we decided to get married and we we're preparing for marriage when I was thinking about my vows I started to sweat I don't know about you but it, I, I realized that they mean something that my vows my covenants that I made to my wife that I was going to make to my wife they were significant it meant something it would require something from me it would require dying to myself and it required giving of myself there was a serious commitment. But the reality is I entered into that commitment because of my affection for my wife. I loved her. I had great and deep affection. And by the way, I still do. I'm not just saying it's a past tense. I, I had great affection for my wife. And so I wanted to enter into that commitment. It was the affection for my wife that drove me to enter into that commitment. And that's really what we see in this passage. This is not just an obligation or duty that the people are responding to. The people of Israel, they've heard God's word. They've heard God's word being taught. They asked, they asked Nehemiah, bring out the book, and they hear God's word being taught. And as they hear God's word being taught, they are affected. They're cut to the core, they're convicted. But they're also affected by God's mercy. By God's continual faithfulness. You see, as they've read through the history of the people of Israel, the history of the people of Israel, as we learned in, in not only chapter 8 and chapter 9, but really all through the Old Testament, it's a, it's a messy, ugly history. 
where God calls a people to himself and calls them into covenant. God makes commitments to them and then tells them that in response, they too must keep commitments and yet God's people continually fail time after time. From the very beginning with Adam and Eve, they failed to keep covenant with God and then all throughout the Old Testament. And so as the people of God are listening to God's word being read and they're hearing all about the history of God's people, what they are hearing about is their repeated failures but God's repeated faithfulness. And what they're hearing about is not just God's faithfulness, but his unending mercies. And so when we wrap up chapter nine, which is a chapter prior to this, um, what, what they are appealing to God, they're appealing to God, not on the basis of all of their sins, which they are recounting, they are convicted by all their sins, but they're appealing to God because they are affected by hearing God's word. And they want to worship God because of all of his great mercies to them. Because of God's love for them, they are responding in in a loving response to God. And in chapter 9, we see that they were throwing a big party. They were celebrating God's faithfulness, celebrating God's goodness. God has built the temple. He's, He's built them, really. He has brought them back into this place. He's provided for them in miraculous ways. And But what they were most struck by in chapter 9 is the faithfulness, the mercy of God. And it affects them. It affects them deeply. And it creates an affection for God. I think that's supposed to be the effect for us. We're meant to be affected by God's mercy. When when we hear God's word preached, we're meant to not only hear God's word preached, we're we're meant for it to penetrate to our hearts. And and I I tell you what, when I hear God's God's word preached, it it affects me, it convicts me, it brings a realization of God's holiness, who he is, and then who I am in response to him. And when that happens, I see how beautiful and wonderful God is and how ugly I am. But I also see that God is continually merciful. He's continually merciful. And and in, in the New Testament, it tells us that we love him, why? Because he first loved us. And that response of affection for God, being affected by God's word, which is what we see in this passage. We see people who are truly affected by God's word. They're truly affected by God's word and they are committed to truly living for God. The question for you is, have you been truly affected by God's word? Have you been truly affected by God's, who God is? Have you been truly affected by your sin, by the the ugliness of your own sin in comparison to the purity of God? And then have you been affected by the mercies of God, the mercies that are new every morning, how faithful God is? I think God has, has that for us this morning is he wants us to see that people who are truly affected by God truly commit to living for God or commit to truly living for God. If you're a Christian and you've been affected by seeing who God is through his word, in light of his word, your sin's gonna become apparent. You know, my, my, my bigger struggle often as a believer is being more aware of my sin than I am aware of what God has done. If you're affected by God's word, if God's word has convicted you, It's going to make your sins apparent, but what we're meant to be struck with is not just left with our sins. We're meant to be left with what they were left with in chapter 9 of Nehemiah. They were left with an awareness in light of all of our repeated failures, in light of all of our repeated sins, time after time after time after time, God continues to extend mercy. And so they're affected by God's mercy and his faithfulness. You know, as Christians... The fact that God has forgiven all of our sins despite our unfaithfulness should affect us. It's meant to affect us. We know mercy because of Jesus that will never end. That should affect us. It should give us hope. As Christians, we're meant to look back. We're meant to look back and do what they're doing. They, they're looking back over the last few chapters of Nehemiah. They're looking back. They're reflecting on things. They're aware of their own sins, but they're not stuck with their own sins. What they're more affected by is not a view of their own past sins, but in light of all of their sins, they are most affected by God's mercy, his kindness and his forgiveness. 
And because of that, we're, we're meant to be affected in the same way. Looking back like, like they did in that day. Looking back and seeing all of our sins. Seeing the forgiveness of God. Now we can move forward. The Apostle Paul talks about that in Philippians 3. In Philippians 3.12 he says, Not that I've already obtained or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I don't consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind me, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We find them here in chapter 10. They've, they've rejoiced in their salvation. They've, they've seen what God has done. They've made confession of who God is. They've made confession of, of their own sins. And now they're moved to change. They've asked for God's mercy, but they don't take it lightly. They realize that they can move forward in view of God's mercy. It's kind of what it tells us in Romans 12. In full view of God's mercy, therefore, we now live as a living sacrifice, present our bodies as a living sacrifice. They make this solemn, this binding covenant, and they get very specific. And so what we're gonna see in this is that that people who see God's mercy and are affected by God, they commit to truly living for God, and that commitment is not just mere words. It's easy to say that I'm affected by God, that I experience conviction. We've been hearing in James periodically, James talks about being a hearer of, I mean, doer of the word and not just a hearer only. If we're, if we're gonna be doers of the word and not just hearers only, then as we're affected by God, it requires a commitment to truly live for God. They're committed and they make this solemn binding covenant. There's a lot of seriousness to this passage. They make a very serious, a very solemn binding covenant, a commitment, a statement. They make oaths, they call down curses on themselves and they, they're committed to living for God in light of how they've been affected by God's mercies. They had previously abandoned the worship of God. Now they're committing themselves to worship God in every area of life. And they're so serious that they, they seal their names. It says, on the seals are the names. And so you get this picture of this, this massive document, this probably this long scroll, and all the leaders of every family, all the leaders of every tribe, they're coming up and they're sealing it and they're affixing somehow their name. It's a solemn commitment. They're, they're actually responding They're making a covenant. They're ratifying it, sealing it with their names. They've bound themselves to it. When when we see the mercy and the kindness and the grace of God, when we hear of God's forgiveness for our sins, it's meant to have an effect on our hearts, on our emotions. It's meant to have an effect on how we feel, but it's not meant to stop there. It's meant to have an effect on how we live. If you profess belief in Jesus, if you say, I love Jesus, but you're not living for him, then you've not truly committed your life to Jesus. People truly affected by God commit to truly living for God. And that commitment to God means obeying God's word. That's the first thing that we see in this passage is this this radical commitment to obeying God's word. This radical commitment to obeying God's word. There is is a move from an affection for God, a response to God, a commitment to God, and where it begins is this commitment to obeying God's word. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, our entire lives should be governed by God's word. The question is, is your life governed by God's word? Do you seek to submit your life to every area of God's word? That's a radical call. That's a serious commitment. But Jesus, he sets us the perfect example. In John 6, 38, he says, I've come not to do my own will. He says, I've come down not from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus set the perfect example, and not only did he set the perfect example, he perfectly obeyed, so now we're actually enabled to obey. Because Jesus was fully obedient, now we can respond and obey God's word. 
And notice something here in this passage. It says, it includes all who separated from the people of the land to the law of God. He says they were separating themselves. All the people who have separated from the the peoples of the land and separated themselves to the law of God. They were separating themselves from something. They were separating themselves from idolatry. They were repenting, leaving a life of idolatry and separating themselves to the law of God. When you became a believer in Jesus Christ and you said that you wanted to place your faith in Jesus and live for him, you were separating yourself from living for your own self, you were separating yourself from living for idolatry, and you're separating yourself to living under God's law. And you think, well, wait a minute, isn't that legalistic? That's not New Testament, Matt. I don't know about that. Why are we, why are we all about obedience? No, you know what? Jesus died to set us free so that we can obey. Previously, we were unable to obey. Prior to Jesus dying for us and setting us free from being enslaved to our own desires, we could not do anything but obey our own desires. And now, because Jesus has died to set us free from sin, now we can live obedient to him. And that's really what the whole Christian life is all about. You know the Great Commission? We love to talk about the evangelism aspects of the Great Commission. But you know the Great Commission is go into all the world preaching the gospel? No, it's go into the world make disciples of all nations. Now that entails preaching the gospel. But then what's the next line? It says teaching them to, depends on your, on your version, either observe or obey. Being a disciple of Jesus means obeying Jesus and saying, God, I want to live for you because I don't know what's best, and you do. Obeying is a serious commitment. We also see it's a family matter, too. I love the picture here. It's, it's, they're there with their entire families, their sons, their daughters, their wives. The, everybody is there together. This is a family commitment. And if you have a family, if you are a leader of a family, whether you are a single mom or whether you're a dad or um, what, what your family looks like, if you have a family obeying God's word, it's a family matter. And that's what we see here. Now, it started way before this in chapter 8 when, when they said, hey, we want to submit to hearing God's word. And everybody who is old enough to understand, now I'm not exactly sure what the age of understanding was, but it was at least 12 minimum and up. Everybody who was able to understand and think for themselves, they were all there hearing God's word being taught. They heard God's word being taught for days, actually. It began with that commitment as a family to submit to hearing God's word on a regular basis. Are you committed as a family to hearing God's word on a regular basis? If you are responsible for leading your family, are you leading your family in hearing God's word and responding to God's word? Imagine if every family in the church began to do this. If all of us said, you know what, we want to submit ourselves to regularly, not just Sunday mornings, being here as much as is possible, but submitting ourselves to hearing God's word regularly, daily, would have a transformative effect. Not just on our own families, but on the world around us. When our kids go to school, when we go to work, It would have a transformative effect. And and that's really what our lives are meant to be, is we're meant to kind of be gossiping out the gospel. We're meant to be spreading out the good news of who God is by demonstrating that we're submitted to living under God's word ourselves and our families. Their whole family was there. It starts with this commitment to hearing God's word, and then it was responding to God's word and repentance. Everybody in chapter 9 was repenting as well. Everybody who could understand I don't know where the little kids were. Maybe they had Grace Kids or something equivalent for it back then. I have no idea how they handled the kids who couldn't, or maybe they just brought them with them. But everybody was there, and not only were they hearing and repenting, they were practically applying. You know, it's easy to sit and hear a message. Our problem today is not not a lack of hearing God's word, although in our own lives maybe, and and feasting on God's word daily, but our problem is, is not that we don't get God's word is that we don't apply God's word. 
Obeying means applying God's word practically. They, they come up with some real practical examples. They say they're going to obey God's word in every way, in all of his commandments, in all of his statutes, all of his rules, all of his laws. It's pretty comprehensive. I was thinking through that and I'm thinking, you know what, wait a minute. Is, is, when I read the Bible, am I actually committed to saying, you know what, God, every commandment I see, Lord, I'm going to obey that. I want to seek to obey you. I want to seek to submit to that. And Lord, whenever I'm convicted of an area that I'm not obeying, Lord, I want to, I want to create some kind of practical step to respond, if at all possible. You know, I, I love the example of, of Jonathan Edwards. He is a saint from old, and, and he wrote up, I think, more than 70-some resolutions. He was serious, and he was practical about his obedience. Obedience is a serious and solemn commitment. It's not half-hearted, it's whole-hearted, all-encompassing. And becoming a Christian, it's not just about believing in God, being forgiven by God. When we place our faith in God, we trust in Jesus, what we are saying is we are forsaking living for ourselves, separating ourselves from living for idols, and we're now separating ourselves to live under God's laws. It's a high calling. It's a high and radical calling. To forsake living for ourselves, to commit to living for Jesus every day. May none of us sit here or stand here and, and fall prey to easy believism and the idea that being a Christian, it, it gets us into heaven and then we can live like we want. May we not become susceptible to really what's all around us in the culture around us that, that professes belief in Jesus and yet doesn't live for Jesus. That, that lives one way on Sunday morning and not lives for him the rest of the week. To say that you're a follower of Jesus and not actively seek to live like Jesus, it's, it's not possible. Unless there's a heart to observe. Now, when none of us observe all the commandments of Jesus perfectly and, and there's freedom in the fact knowing that we will continue to fail and yet he's already forgiven us for every failure we've ever had there's great freedom in that that actually makes me want to get up and try again so you know what I'm, I'm, I'm more committed now to living for him knowing that when I fail I've already been forgiven and I've received his mercy and so he doesn't condemn me but he does call me to obedience. He says, if you love me, you'll do what? You'll keep my commandments. If you love me, you keep my commandments. A call to be a disciple is a call to be willing to lose everything, willing to leave everything and deny yourselves in every way and follow Jesus. This is a hard passage. It's meant to affect us. It's meant to challenge us. Are we willing to obey God in every area? Not that we'll get it right, but is that our heart's desire? I can only imagine that if, if I begin to apply this own word to my own life, the change that I'll see in, in how I speak to my wife, my children, and how I relate to my neighbors, and how I love God and how I love others. Not only does it mean being obedient to God, it means entrusting in God for his provision. That's really what we see in verses 30 and 31. Commitment to God, it means, it means trusting in God for his provision. It's not just obedience to God and saying, God, I want to obey you, but it actually starts with the heart attitude of saying, God, not only am I going to be committed to obeying you and all your rules and statutes, but I'm going to actively trust you and demonstrate that trust in you. And they, they demonstrated that trust in a few ways. They demonstrated that trust in, in their marriages, in their relationships. They demonstrated that trust in, in the Sabbath, in, in resting in God. They demonstrated that trust in saying, God, you know what? Every seven years, we're, we're going to let the land lay fallow and we're not going to take income from the land. They demonstrated that trust in saying, you know what, God? We're going to forgive our debts every seven years. There's a real cost to trust in God. But the commitment to God means trusting in God's provision. Now, I am so grateful for the very many examples that God has given in history past, but also in our own church. I love that Aaron was highlighting Lenny and, and, and his whole family, really, and, and their story, because it's really a testimony of trusting in God in the midst of the unknown. And, and by the way, I think Mariana was just as much, or maybe more of a testimony to begin with at least, 
when her husband was not conscious and trusting in God's provision and seeing God miraculously provide as well. But there's, there's all kinds of examples in our church of that. Wonderful examples of commitment to God that's demonstrated by trusting in God. You know, there's, there's all kinds of people who have suffered in different ways, people who are unable to work and, and have had to trust in God's provision. I, I love the example of, of Bob and Cam Smith, the, that, that loving trust and reliance in God. You know, Bob's got Parkinson's. He's, he's not able to, to work like he desperately would love to do, and yet they are an example of being committed to God by trusting in God and trusting in God to provide you know, I, I love the example of, of Alan and Ruth Ballard where many years ago, Alan was in an in a accident when his, his motorcycle got hit by a car and, and, and they trusted in God's provision and God was faithful to provide. The people here, they're committed to trusting in God's provision. And you see it first in that they're trusting in God's provision for marriage. And unless you think that's something light, it's a pretty big deal. There weren't a lot of people in the land back then. There weren't a whole lot of people. And so I'm guessing the daughters were kind of pressuring, hey, dad, there's this cute guy. He's expressing interest. He's coming around a lot. You know, he's pretty nice. The problem was they weren't following the Lord. Those people from other lands were not following God. Now, this wasn't racism. This wasn't classism or elitism. This was God saying, no, he wants to make sure that they're not being idolatrous and intermarrying with people who are not following God. And he had made a provision, and I love even in this passage, this includes Gentiles, people who have separated themselves out from peoples of the land. So this isn't, this isn't about people from other nations can't marry Israelites. No, it's that people who are actively serving other gods who have not become a part of the nation of Israel and serving God. And so what we see, though, is it's a serious commitment for them to say, wait a minute, there might not be enough men, able-bodied men here, so, but we're going to trust that God will provide for our daughters and that God will provide women for our sons. And so they're trusting in God's provision. They're committed to trust God in leading their children. Now, back then, they, they dictated who their kids marry. We don't do that anymore. We're, you know, sometimes, although if you're a dad, probably like me, there's times when you really want to. If you have a daughter, at least. Sons, you know, I love you. But it's not the same. It's just not but when I think of my daughter getting married, there's something in me that's like, yeah, I want the final say. I wish that was possible. I, it, it's not. But, 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 but what God has called us to do is to raise our kids up in such a way to trust God in the raising of our children so that they want to marry believers. And so there's even a relying on God in, in, in child rearing that applies to us. You know, are you preparing your children for marriage? And are you preparing your children to be godly themselves? And are you preparing your children to marry godly people? Now, we, we don't control the outcome of that. We have to trust God that what we can do is we can, we can bathe our kids in the word of God. We can surround them when we get up and we, when we go to bed. And, and whatever we do, we can, we can influence them with God's word. We can teach them about God's word. Now we trust God for the outcome at the same time, it is our responsibility to do everything we can to prepare them to hopefully love God themselves, but also love people who love God. And that's a New Testament command as well for believers. If you are a believer, 2 Corinthians 6.14, it's very clear. It says, don't be unequally yoked. It's a very vivid imagery there. It's a picture of oxen being tied together. That's, that's, that's marriage. I'm not saying that you're ox, but it's a picture of marriage. You are joining yourself together in such a way that it can't be broken. Wherever you go, your spouse goes. So it says, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And he explains why. He says, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? You know, it might be tempting if you are a young man or a young woman here, it might be tempting to think, you know what? It's not that big of a deal for Mary, unbeliever. I'll influence them for God. No, you won't. 
You're, you're, you're joining yourself with someone who is joined to Belial, joined to the devil. He says, what, what partnership does light have with darkness? Making that pledge meant trusting in God for their provision. Now something else also too, a little nuance there is that people in that day, especially then, when they were surrounded by all these other nations all around them, what they would have been tempted to do is, is intermarry for another reason too. They would have been tempted to intermarry for their own peace. Because, hey, if my daughter can marry the son of the tribal leader next door, then you know what? We'll probably have a better, better relationship with them. Or if my, if my daughter can marry into the prince of the nation right beside us, then maybe we'll be set financially too. And so it was an issue of safety and security and peace. And so what this principle applies to us as well is not just in marriage, but also are we trusting in God to give us peace? and safety, and security, and trusting in God to provide. You know, we might be tempted to compromise in, in living holy lives and trusting in God in order to gain peace with people around us. We might be tempted to soften our language to create relationships with unbelievers that really are, are ungodly by softening our language, by dumbing down what we believe, by not really speaking up about what we believe, by being politically correct at times instead of obeying Scripture. Compromise maybe in our business dealings, bending our ethics in order to secure a peaceful union with other people. And, and God says, no, you need to trust me in your relationships. And their obedience like ours, it's, it's ultimately meant to point us to the wonderful reality of how God joins himself to us as his people. And, and our marriages are meant to reflect that as well, that how, how Jesus has joined himself to us. And it's meant to point to great reality of his love for the church. Now let's see that, look in verse 31. They're committed to trusting God's provision for rest in the provision of the Sabbath. Are you resting in God? Responding to God's affection means also being committed to resting in God. You know, maybe... Maybe for New Testament believers, the Sabbath looks different. There's a principle of rest, though, that continues. There's a principle of Sabbath rest that continues. It's a, it's a principle to honor God more than honoring commerce. It's a principle to honor God more than honoring ourselves. It's a principle to say, God, I'm going to trust you enough to take rest that you're going to take care of me. You know, they probably created a loophole back then, by the way. So they're saying, they're really getting explicit. They're saying, hey, you know what? When we're tempted to, when other nations come in and they want to do business and trade with us, they were probably tempted to create a loophole and they probably had created a loophole there. It says, you know what? We're not working. We're just buying. We're not working. We're just buying on the Sabbath. And so they did business because they didn't want to miss out. They didn't want to lose out business opportunities. Are you resting and trusting in God with your business, with your commerce, with what you do? Are you willing to lose out on opportunities because you're honoring God? Are you willing to worship God together as as a primary way to honor him and not forsake assembling together? Even when it's inconvenient. You know, those who trust in Christ seek to rest in Christ. And then look in verse 31, they're also committed to trusting him provision for income. It was pretty significant that they said that they're going to, not only are they not going to do business on the Sabbath, but they're going to forego planting crops. Now, most of the people there, I would say the, the, the largest majority of the people there were, were agrarian. And so they relied on crops. And so if you were planting every year and harvesting, it would be a major, major evidence of trust in God. If you said, you know what, this year, it's the seventh year. I'm not going to plant any crops. I'm going to trust in God. That would be a huge leap of faith. And actually look throughout Israel's history and they rarely have ever did that. He says, we'll forego the crops of the seventh year. They were trusting God with their income. Not only that, they were trusting God when people didn't pay them back. He says, we're going to trust with God here. It says the exaction of every debt. We're going to forego the exaction of every debt. It was a confession of faith in God and it meant obeying God and trusting in God. I, I, lo- I love the way that, that, that a commentator named Ray Brown, he puts it, he says, there are times in all of our life when obedience to God 
involves a venture of faith. We can't always see the way ahead with the clarity we would like, but if we're doing what he says, he will never disappoint us. We can't always see the way ahead with the clarity that we would like, but if we're doing what he says, he will never disappoint us. Do you believe that? That's a pretty bold statement. Can you trust in God? Can you rest in him? Not only is it, is it means resting in God, for us it might mean being committed to making fair deals and saying, God, you know what? We're gonna trust that we're not just getting the best deal for ourselves, but we're gonna trust that you want what's best for other people too. We're gonna, we're gonna seek to, in your provision, we're gonna forgo at times exacting debt. Doesn't mean we're fools, naive, but it means we're, we're consciously putting our faith, our trust in him. You know, do you trust in God to, to radically provide for you? What would that look like for you? Could, could you imagine if we were radically demonstrating our trust in him, how our neighbors might respond, how our coworkers might respond? You know, do we trust that God will provide for us if, if we forgive debts that we might rightly be owed? Well, not only did it mean obeying God's word and trusting him to provide, it also meant giving towards God's house. Look in verse 32 to 39. There's, there's something that's repeated all throughout these verses. In, in these short verses, nine times it's repeated. They're, they're giving to God's house, to God's house, to God's house, to God's house. At the very end, we won't neglect God's house. And, and how are they not neglecting God's house? By giving to God's house. There's a serious requirement here for God's people. Now, this is not prescriptive, but it is descriptive, a principle that really continues, and that, that everything that we have belongs to God. The New Testament paradigm is not that we do less in giving. It's that we say, you know what, God, everything belongs to you, Lord. Not how much could I give, but Lord, how much would you have me keep? That's a radical call. You know, in our church, we don't preach on giving um, we don't say, you know what, hey, this Sunday I'm going to pick out a giving topic. No, we, we, we preach on it just as it comes through every passage in the Bible. And, and here we see that it's really overt. The people were committed to giving. You know, if you want to see where our priorities are and who we're living for, one of the most clear ways you can figure out who you're living for is, is by going and looking at your bank account statement. Now, it probably is making everybody really uncomfortable right now. I'm not asking to look at your bank account statements, by the way. Um, I'd rather not. Both because I might be convicted, and I, I don't think there's condemnation here, but this is meant to challenge us. You see, these words were written down for our instruction, too. There's a principle here. There's no getting around this principle. There's a commitment to God means giving to God's house. And it's repeated nine times. It's not just an Old Testament principle. You know, ultimately, Jesus gave himself, now the New, New Testament, the modern-day equivalent of the house of God is actually the church. Jesus gave himself for the house of God, the people of God. It's not physically a place. I don't mean the physical place of God, but the church, the people of God. Are you committed to giving yourself and giving to the people of God, the church of God? Now, there were some practicalities here. It wasn't just, it wasn't just general vagaries of saying, we're committed to giving no, it starts off with really specific, very particular. They were committed to a bunch of different ways of giving, a whole lot of ways of giving, and all of verse 32 to the verse 39. And it starts off with really practical stuff. It says, you know what? We're going to give practically to begin with. We're going to give a third of a shekel of silver just every year, no matter what. All of us are going to give a third of a shekel just to upkeep the physical house of God, just, just so they can, they can do the offerings, they have enough stuff to, to do what's required. And they're devoted on, they're, they're, they're focused on giving to the house of God. And, and they want to make sure the priests can bring the burnt offerings, the sin offerings, the atonement offerings. But it doesn't just stop there with really practical, specific needs. It, it moves on to everybody doing their part. Because if, if, if responsibility is everybody's responsibility, it's nobody's responsibility. You know, you know what I'm saying? If... if if I say that, you know, it's all of our responsibility to serve in the church, it's all of our responsibility to provide for the needs of God's people and for the needs of this church, then it's really nobody's responsibility unless you take it on yourself practically. And so that's what we see they did. Not only did they give a third of a shekel every year, but then after that it says, you know what, we're going we're gonna to cast lots and all of us are going to be responsible, but we're going to make sure somebody's particularly responsible for providing wood 
I know it sounds really silly, but there was a lot of wood needed because they're burning sacrifices all the time. And there wasn't a lot of wood in the land of Israel back then. There had been a lot of wars. And all the trees were taken down. So providing wood was an expensive thing. So you know what? Hey, we're just going to trust God. If, we, if it's our turn, we're going to provide wood. Now, we don't provide wood for a sacrifice. We don't make sacrifices anymore. We, we rarely, if ever, have bonfires even in the church. But, you know, um, we're, we're not asking for wood. But, but, but how we can say, you know what? We all want to do our part practically and specifically is if there's a need in the church, say, okay, wait a minute. If I see that there's a need in, in ushering or in children's ministry or in some other area, I'm not going to assume that somebody else is going to do that because, you know, that's, every, that's an appeal to everybody. I'm going to say, okay, wait a minute, how can I provide the wood? How can, how can, how can I go serve? How can I do, go do, do my part? And then look in verse 35 to, to 37. They're committed as well to giving specifically, but then they're committed to giving their best. All throughout, verse 35, 37, we obligate ourselves. This isn't legalism. This is giving willfully, willingly giving their best. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground, the first fruits of every tree, year by year. And then, and then it goes on from there. Not only that, we're going to be the firstborn of our sons and our cattle. Now, now, they dedicate their children does not mean that they're sacrificing their children. It means they're saying, God, our kids belong to you. We're giving our best. And then it says, of our cattle, as is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks and our dough and our contributions and every tree and wine and oil to the priests. What, what, what do we see here? We see a wholehearted devotion to giving their best for the house of God. Are you giving your best for the people of God today? Are you giving your best to the church? Are you giving your first fruits? Are you committed to giving your first fruits? They bring the first fruits of everything that they have they don't hold anything back. All their agriculture, all their produce, all their livestock, all their, their wine, their oil, in every area, they're saying, God, we belong to you and we worship you with our first fruits. Is that how we live? How about you? That's convicting for me, though. You know, the modern day equivalent is considering all of what God's given us and honoring God and giving the first fruits of, of our time, of our, of our money to the church, the work of God in the earth today. Why? See, they were giving towards the temple, the worship of God. What's the, the equivalent today? Is giving towards the church. Why? Because that is the place, the primary means where the gospel is carried out and disciples are made. They're giving so that God might be worshipped, his name might be spread, his name might be proclaimed, and that people might come to him. That's what we do. That's why we as a people can say wholeheartedly, you know what? God calls us to give today to the church because that's where his name is displayed. That's where God's purposes are carried out. That's where disciples are made. That's where churches are planted. That is where people's lives are transformed by the gospel. And then look in, in the latter half of verse 37 to 39. Not only are they, are they giving a third of a shekel, they're giving wood, they're giving the first fruits. Then on top of all that, they're bringing the tithe then. They're bringing a tithe, which was back then was 10% of, of all their produce. And so they're bringing 10% of all their tithes. That would have cost them. This wasn't a wealthy people. They were out of exile. Most of them were not wealthy. And yet all of them were participating in giving sacrificially. Whatever they produced, whatever they gained, they were committed to, to bringing those things into the Lord as well. Now, in our, in our church, you have never heard us teach on tithing because what, what God says is that we're to give willingly, we're to give joyfully in response to God. And we believe that. But I think there's a principle here. We say, you know what, we should at least question our hearts because in the New Testament, whenever Jesus calls us to something, he doesn't call us to less. He always calls us to say, you know, when, when, it, when it talks about adultery, it's not just committing adultery. You don't even look on a woman lustfully. When the New Testament talks about living our lives for God, it's living all of our life for God. Passages like this should challenge us. And then it says, we will not neglect the house of our God. We will, that was the heart motive. They didn't want to neglect the worship of God. 
In the worship of God, it looked like specific commitments. It looked like giving. It looked like worshiping God. It looked like being wholeheartedly devoted to God. It looked like serving. It, it, it looked like obeying God's word and, and bringing their families there. It looked like trusting in God. They were committed to not neglecting the house of God. You know, I was thinking about commitments because really this passage is all about that. And that makes us uncomfortable. Makes me uncomfortable at least. I don't like preaching about commitment. But, but you know why I actually can? Is because we have one who is ultimately committed to us. You see, Jesus, he is our groom. He made the ultimate marriage vows, the marriage covenant. He has given himself to us in marriage. He's made an undying commitment to us. He's, he's made vows and promises to us that he will never forsake. He's promised to leave us, not, never leave us and forsake us. He's, he's promised to forgive us. He's, he's promised to make us clean. He's promised to make us into his image. He's promised to keep us faithful to the end. He has promised to bring us into his presence perfectly complete in him. He has promised us his own righteousness. He's made vows and commitments to us, but not only that, just like in marriage, when we say for better or for worse, Jesus has taken our worst. He's taken our worst. He's taken on all of our sins. He's taken on all of our inadequacies, all of our failures, all of our weaknesses. Like we're called to do for our spouses, Jesus has done ultimately. He's taken on all of our negative aspects. Every negative aspect you have, he's taken on himself. And then he's paid for that. He's done away with that. And then not only does he take on all the negative aspects that we have, he's given us every positive aspect that he's earned. It's the ultimate, the ultimate bride, I mean, the ultimate groom. You know, in, in Nehemiah, they make this, these grand covenants, and, and they keep them for a lot of years, and they probably for about 12 years over the next couple of chapters. But then in chapter 13, it kind of skips ahead, jumps ahead about 12 years, and we see that Nehemiah comes back. He probably went to make a report to the king of Persia. He came back a few years later, and he finds out that they break their covenants in the end. We're going to get to that in a couple of chapters, just a couple of weeks. He finds out that they break their covenants, and then you're thinking, oh my gosh, that's, just, that's so like the people of Israel. They're always breaking covenant. And isn't that so like us, though? Aren't we always breaking covenant? But our, but our hope is not in our ability to keep covenant to be acceptable to God. Our hope is that Jesus perfectly keeps covenant. And he has perfectly kept covenant with us. And he will always keep covenant with us. And not only that, he has perfectly kept the covenants with God. And he has completely earned all the righteous favor of God so that we will never be separated. And we will only have God's mercy. We will only have God's kindness. You know, they sealed their names. They bound themselves to curses. And in some respect, they receive those. Jesus now seals our names. Our names are sealed in the Lamb's book of life. We don't rely on our sealing and our keeping. We rely on his sealing, his keeping. But, but not only that, where they took curses, he took the curse. And we receive the great mercy of God. We've truly received the ultimate, complete mercy of God, no matter how unfaithful we've been. So when we look back and we see, you know what, all of our unfaithfulness, all of our problems, all of our weaknesses, all of our sins, we can respond and say, God, thank you. Thank you that you've been merciful. Thank you that you've been kind to us. Let that affect you. Let God's mercy affect you. And be affected by God's everlasting love for you. And then in response to that, we can say, you know what? Despite how we failed in the past, I'm going to forget what lies behind me. I'm going to press on for the goal. Why? Because now I'm loved. Now I'm able to obey. Now I'm able to respond. And now I'm able to love him in return with all that we are. And now we can trust God to make us into his image and keep us faithful to the end. Because he is imminently merciful to us. Amen? Well, let's pray and have the band come up. God, thank you for your mercy.